Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hello, 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 hello. I'm Tom Brenneman, and welcome to Dialed In. We thank the Believe Network for believing in this show and hosting this show. We thank Dave Armbruster, our producer-engineer. And I'm Tom Brenneman. Uh, We thank Mike Reed, by the way, as always, for our music. uh, Original stuff from Mike Reed. We don't have the money around here to pay for real music, so we just call up one of the great songwriters in the world and has been for 30 years and just say, hey, man, can you whip something up for us? He was kind enough to do it. Uh, Lots going on in sports, college football, full gear, NFL. What a first week. I mean, if you are Roger Goodell, you're sitting there saying, all right, Thursday night we get our opener. We get the Buccaneers and the Cowboys. Incredible game. Tom Brady goes down the field, wins a thing. Dak Prescott's back, looks great. And then here you go on Monday Night Football. Right? Ravens against the uh, Raiders. Uh, Sold-out stadium for the first time. You may remember the owner, um, uh, Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, said last year that if um, if fans can't come and everybody can't come that wants to come, nobody's going to come during the whole COVID thing. So it was the first time that the NFL in Las Vegas, since they moved there, uh, had a full house, and what a game. I mean, if you ever wonder why the NFL is king of the jungle, all you have to do is look at last Thursday night and look at this past Monday night. I mean, on display, the best of the best. Exciting stuff. This week on Dialed In, however, we're stepping out of the world of sports a little bit. Um, I don't know about you. I'm fascinated by what is going on in our world uh, and what is going on in the political world in this country because the last... Uh, eight years have just been uh, combat um, full force. I think we all agree on that. Brad Wenstrup is a medical doctor, a doctor of podiatry. He is also a member of the colonel in the U.S. Army, and he is a representative of Ohio's 2nd Congressional District uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, th- this guy has worked on counterterrorism, counterproliferation, Uh, subcommittee, ways and means, how we're spending our money, what we're spending our money on. And uh, we're stepping out of the box a little bit, and we're going to talk with him this week. Brad Wenstrup, our guest next on Dialed In. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. 
Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Brad Robert Winstrup was born in June of 1958 in Cincinnati, Ohio, to parents Joan and Jack. In 1976, he graduated from Cincinnati St. Xavier High School. Four years later, graduated cum laude with a degree in psychology from the University of Cincinnati. Wenstrup eventually earned a Doctor of Podiatric Medicine in 1985 and practiced podiatry in Cincinnati for 24 years. But then in 1998, at the age of 39, Dr. Brad Wenstrup called 1-800-USA-ARMY and joined the Army Reserve. He was quickly promoted to the rank of major, was deployed to Iraq, where he served as chief of surgery. Wenstrup was promoted to lieutenant colonel in 2011, and then in 2016, the rank of full colonel, where he still serves today. But being in the military, being a full-time podiatrist, being a husband, being a dad wasn't enough. So in 2012, Brad Wenstrup won the U.S. House of Representatives in Ohio's 2nd Congressional District, where he has served for the last nine years. He serves on the Ways and Means Committee, Subcommittee on Oversight, Subcommittee on Worker and Family Support, the U.S. House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and the Subcommittee on Counterterrorism, Counterintelligence, and Counterproliferation. He's also been awarded the Bronze Star Medal and Combat Action Badge. Most importantly, he's the husband of Monica and the father of two. All right, Brad Winstrup. Uh, after all of that, what did I fail to mention that perhaps you're the most proud of? Um, well, if you're asking, uh, I did receive the uh, so- Soldier's Medal, and that was associated with um, helping Steve Scalise. But that's only on the military side, I guess. I-, I am really most proud of being a husband and a father. I mean, I love my two kids. And, uh, you know, it's tough when you have this job where you're away a lot. Yeah, but it's just so rewarding when you come home. My son said to me the other day when I was leaving for D.C., I said, well, I'll, I'll talk to you tonight. We'll FaceTime. And he said, I'll still be missing you. Oh, and, uh, you can't which, beat that. Which made my day. Yep, right? you cannot beat that. I got a text from my son similar to that the other night. And, uh, yeah, those are the moments you can't beat. You know, you're, speaking of that, uh, the shooting, and that was during a congressional softball practice. And you guys are, are out there, and, you know, you're out there having fun and, and doing what you're doing. And then all of a sudden, um, Steve Scalise from Louisiana is shot. Um, walk us through that, that whole thing. I mean, you've been in combat situations. You've seen some things in the military and soldiers coming in severely wounded. And, and, and you're expecting that kind of thing when you're in that job at that place. You're not expecting this kind of thing when you're playing softball. Yeah, well, actually, it's it's uh, baseball. Oh, baseball. I apologize. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. It's baseball because it's a very uh, noble thing that we're practicing for, and that's a charity game. It's a charity game that we play at the Washington Nationals Ballpark, 
uh, once a year, Republicans versus Democrats, and raises half a million dollars sometimes or more for boys and girls clubs uh, of greater Washington, D.C. But at 7 o'clock in the morning on this particular day, we, we really now practice starting at about 6 in the morning because it's the only time we can all get together. But at 7 o'clock in the morning, and we're in this park in Alexandria, Virginia, with very high fences around it, and basically you're, you're within that ballpark. And what we didn't know is that there was a guy who had been living in his van for two months right on the street outside the third base left field line, and he was using the YMCA across the street for showering for his Wi-Fi. Uh, what we didn't know was this was a guy who hated Republicans, hated Donald Trump, was a big Bernie Sanders fan, and decided to turn his politics into to hate. And so that particular morning at about 7 o'clock, uh, I had just been in the batter's box taking some swings and then was on my way to the outfield. And really, by the grace of God, I changed my mind and went down to the batting cage, which is outside the fence of the field, mm -hmm. and down the first baseline. So it really put me in the best spot I could be in. Tom, this guy takes his first shot. He's got a rifle, and he he takes his first shot from just beyond the dugout. And by the grace of God, the first shot hit a link in the fence, which you can see today. By the grace of God, the groundskeeper had locked the third base gate the night before, and he told me he didn't really know why. But the guy playing third base is Trent Kelly. He's a two-star general in, in the guard, and that shot just missed him because it hit the link in the fence. But the next, the next shot hit Steve Scalise, and there was a lot of firing. This guy was firing away. Uh, Steve went down. I was pulling himself towards the outfield. He was playing second base, and uh, there he, there he, he laid. Uh, I got down. I could see the shooter. We were very lucky Steve Scalise was there because he took a bullet for all of us, Tom. If he wasn't there, Capitol Police aren't there because he's in leadership, so he has a detail with him wherever he goes. These guys are undercover. They're sitting in an unmarked vehicle, and they were over by the first base side outside the fence. And they both began to engage with the shooter. He used that third base dugout for cover. He came around. People were diving into the dugout. Another fortunate thing is this community park had dugouts that went down five or six steps. So they, people were diving in. People got hurt diving in, laying on top of each other, and you can still see the bullet holes above the top of the dugout. So this guy's now shooting around the home plate area, but he is being engaged by Capitol Police who only have handguns. And this went on for almost close to 10 minutes. There Goodness were 136 gracious. rounds fired. And he eventually went behind another building and was now shooting down my lane. So I took cover behind a um, bathroom that was out there. People are hiding behind trees, uh, taking cover wherever they could. Both of the police got shot. Total number of uh, five of us got shot before the one remaining standing Capitol Police was uh, accompanied by some Alexandria police. And, and they took this guy down. And as they were taking him down, uh, I was able to get out to Steve and uh, do the things I was trained to do in the Army and um, make sure that we can get him to the next phase of care. And he was still conscious at the time, but he wasn't conscious when he left the field. And when he came back, roughly, I think it was three and a half months later, and came back into the House of Representatives, um, obviously he, he said that, you know, if it's not for 
Dr. Brad Wenstra being there, I'm probably dead. And uh, you received a standing ovation. You mentioned the award. Um, I don't know as a doctor, you know, because I'll, I'll never be a doctor, but I, I would imagine that, uh, that, that, that knowing you had a hand by the grace of God, you had a hand in saving another person's life, uh, that has to be something that, that, that words probably can't even describe. Uh, it is hard to describe. I mean, I can tell you when I was in Iraq and I was chief of surgery for a combat support hospital there for a year, when we get a Marine or a soldier that comes in that's on death's door and you get things in place and you bring them back, I mean, it's a, it's a celebration. In this particular case, it was really Army training. I, w- I was not uh, rattled at all. I, I just feel like I was in the right place, right time. And, and, and knowing what to do uh, came, came natural. What really got me, Tom, was a couple days later uh, when I realized that I had changed my mind and went down to the batting cage rather than the outfield. And that, that hit me. It's like, that, that's God's hand in this thing, right? Because I didn't even like the batting cage, by the way. It's wild. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's thrown at your head. It's all over the place. Right. For some reason, I decided to go down there and take a few more swings. And the other thing was, I usually had to leave early because of meetings. And that day, I was able to stay later. So just a lot of things. But when Steve came back, it was unbelievable. And his recovery has been amazing. And to this day now, he walks without a cane, got a little bit of a limp. And he has had the best attitude through this entire thing. I've never seen him act bitter. Uh, He's an amazing character that that he is. Uh, To go through that, and, you know, all he's ever said is, I I don't hold any politician responsible for this. I hold that guy responsible for it. He's responsible for his own actions, and he has just accepted this, and I think he approaches it more like, I'm so glad to be alive. I'm not going to complain. <laughs> Amazing. You grow up in Cincinnati, as I mentioned earlier. You, you go to college or in a fraternity like a lot of us. Uh, you get a degree in psychology. You go back, get another degree in biology. Then you go to medical school. You're a doctor. You're practicing in your hometown. I mean, you got things going on. Then in 1998 – you make this call to 1-800-USA-ARMY. Why? Well, you know, I was watching what was going on and happening to our country. And I brought this up at 9-11 ceremonies over the weekend. Our country had been attacked about 10 times. And starting with when I was a senior in college, if you think about it, when we had the Iranian hostage crisis in 1979. Yep. But you had multiple attacks on our embassies in Tanzania, in Kenya, in Beirut, Lebanon, attacks on our our interests, our marine barracks in Lebanon, uh, in Saudi Arabia, in a a residence that housed U.S. citizens, and then the USS Cole. And And it just kept coming. And I thought, you know, if we need to go somewhere, I'll go. And And keep in mind, the World Trade Center was attacked earlier in the 90s by the same people that orchestrated yep. the attack on 9-11-2001. I think sometimes people forget all that. Um, and so uh, seeing all that, I thought, if we need to go somewhere, I'll go. And the Gulf War, I knew of a couple local doctors that were called up as reservists, and I thought, I- I'll do that. And, and I got my, my chance, and I served in Iraq for one year as chief of surgery for a combat support hospital, actually stationed at Abu Ghraib Prison a couple years after the scandal. And our job was not only to take care of our troops 
but we would move them along to Germany and back to the States if needed. Uh, but uh, we we there to take care of the enemy, and there's uh, and it's a very interesting mission, as you might imagine. I mean, one of the people I operated on was Chemical Ali. Here's a guy who was responsible for killing tens of thousands of Kurds, and uh, we took care of them. Uh, they they hung him a few years later in their own court system, um, but it was a very very interesting mission, and obviously we were. Very, very busy throughout the entire year. No one was ever bored. Yeah, but, but I want to ask you, though, about the day you find out you're being deployed to Iraq. And, I mean, I have to continue to come back to this over and over because it's a part in my mind, and I think a lot of people listening, they're, they're thinking, wait a minute now. This guy's got three degrees. He's a medical doctor. Um, you know, he, he's practicing. He's successful. Uh, he's got everything that you, you, you'd really want to hope for. At 39, he signs up for the U.S. Army Reserves, and now you're told you're going to Iraq. Are you scared? Uh, yeah, well, you know, you're always concerned about the unknown. You know, you're, you train for a lot of things, but it's not the same as as being in, in the theater for, for, for real. And, you know, I had been called up in the, the year before, and I, and I went to processing and everything else, and and when I got done, they said, oh, someone else took your assignment. <laughs> I said, okay. So I go home. And they go, yeah. I said, well, what was the assignment? Oh, you were going to do a 90-day backfill at, at Fort Carson. And most reserve physicians just do a 90-day uh, uh, stint. And that's how they could keep their practices. Well, I started with my own practice and later joined Wellington Orthopedics. We had about 26 physicians at the time. And and I uh, was very grateful to be working with these great doctors, but it was very fortunate, too, because I got a call in March of 2005, a uh, similar call to what I got before, and it said, you know, you're, you're, being, you're being called up, and you have to go to processing later this week because your unit we're assigning you to is already at Fort McCoy training. And I said, okay. So I go to processing, and they said, you need to be there the next week. Well, I've got surgery scheduled for months and everything else. So it is pretty shocking. But what most shocking is when I said, well, how, how long? And he said, well, your orders will say 18 months, but it probably won't be that long. Mm. Well, I am so grateful for all my partners because when I told them, they're like, we got this. We'll take care of your patients. We'll do your follow-ups. You know, you, you do what you need to do. So I, I was very fortunate in that regard. But it's a very daunting thing uh, to hear you're going to be gone 18 months when your life is just kind of cruising along yeah. here, right? And uh, but I wouldn't trade the experience. I, I always say it's uh, it's it's the worst thing I ever had to do, but the best thing I ever got to do. And that's mostly because of the outstanding people that you serve with. So many selfless people that would do anything for others, including giving their lives, and 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 many did. And uh, so it, it, it changes you and probably was part of the inspiration for me to want to do more running for Congress. Well, we'll talk about how it changes you because, um, you know, it, 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 it's one thing uh, when you're out there in the quote unquote trenches and, and you start losing friends or watching friends or guys you become close with get hurt in combat. Um, but, but then when you're actually in the hospital and I know you're doing your job. But, I mean, to see 19 and 20 and 21 and 22-year-old young men coming in there, 
um, the possibility of losing a limb, the possibility of being disabled for life, uh, the possibility of dying. Uh, it, it has to change your view of the world. Yeah, you know, I can remember uh, the first time. We had a lot of saves, but I remember the first time we weren't able to save one of our troops on the table, and you know, I saw him slipping away, and I remember looking at the clock and thinking, what time is it at home? And I thought, you know, his family has no idea yeah. what just happened. Mm-mm-mm. And and, and, in, and at the same time, the anesthesiologist said, he was at my table at breakfast this morning. And, you know, that, that's pretty uh, eye-opening, right? This is the harsh reality. and this, these, these are human beings. These are just you and I that said that they want to serve and have their, their life. Actually, their life has been given. They gave their lives. And it's really, in that way, it's a beautiful thing. But, it, but it's tough. I mean, I really struggled that first time. And it's not like I didn't struggle the other times. Um, and then I remember, too, you talk about attitude uh, through all of it. I remember early on, and I had forgotten this until the staff sergeant reminded me at the end of the tour, but early on in the tour, she said to me, sir, how do you come in here and, and smile every day and try and find a way to laugh every day? And I said, well, I don't smile and laugh every minute of every day. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I said, but if I, if I don't, then they won. Then they beat me, and I don't want them to beat me. You know, this is a place we're attacked three, four times a week. But that soldier, she came to me at the end of the tour. She said, that really helped me. Well, that helps me now, right? I mean, it's the same type of an attitude. You come home and you go, I got today. You know, I I woke up today. I'm Mm -hmm. here today. Let's make the most of it. Not that I don't ever get down or don't get frustrated. We all do. It's human emotions. But but you can take a a moment to reflect and feel how lucky you are to have another day on this planet. You mentioned, you know, that, that your experience there uh, at least was uh, part of the building block to run for politics. But look, uh, you know the dog-eat-dog world, or maybe then you really didn't know the dog-eat-dog world of what politics was going to be like. Um, wh- why run and expose yourself to all of those kinds of things that you're exposed to when you're, when you're in that position in the, in the House of Representatives? You know, I'm an optimist, but I also have great respect for our founders. Our founders really studied almost any government that ever existed, and they were obviously very much into personal independence, freedom, and creating something that had never been created before. And with all of its pitfalls, I still contend it's it's the best system of government if we are sticking to it. Mm-hmm. Our Constitution is, is beautiful. And we, we need to stick to it. And I do feel that we've strayed from it. And I'm not as uh, innocent today as I was nine years ago when I first came in. Um, I, I remember hearing John McCain saying years ago, he said, when I first got elected to Congress, I looked around this beautiful Capitol and I thought, how did I get here? Because I wasn't here long before I said, how did they get here? But that's <laughs> another story. And that's America, right? And, and so we, we live... And, and this is a problem that I think we have today, is that we need, to, we need to be grateful that we live in a country where we get to elect our leaders. Yep. You know, we really saw when Donald Trump get elected that people couldn't accept that. They couldn't accept that and move on. And so you, it led to these impeachments that really had 
no bearing. The Russian collusion thing certainly had no bearing, and we put up with that for years. So, but I, I went in very optimistically, and I still really much am. I'm, I'm kind of like a Ronald Reagan in that regard. I think that there's goodness in in the soul of virtually every American. It's just, uh, do they let it take over sometimes? But I was looking at, at Congress, and people started asking me to run, Tom. I came back, I gave a talk about my tour, about heroes I served with, and people heard about it. Then I started getting invited to speak all the time. And I would uh, go to surgery, throw in my uniform, speak at Rotary, speak at Kiwanis, uh, speak at Memorial Day, Veterans Day events, and then go back to the office and see patients. And I've literally given over 115 speeches in uniform. I just did three in uniform on 9-11, where I'm taking my military role rather than my congressional role. But I was looking at Congress, and I was looking at our government itself. And at the time, you know, to be quite honest, we had a president uh, that was there. And um, I was looking at my experiences that I was fortunate to have. You know, I started my own practice. I was part of a large orthopedic group. I was operations chair. You know, we got people making business decisions that never ran a business. And we have people making healthcare decisions that have never seen a patient and have no idea what some of their regulations and rules do to patient care. And we have people making military decisions that never served. So maybe I have something to offer here. And I think that's what our founders have in mind. We need farmers in Congress. We need people from every walk of life to be in Congress so they can relate to the real world that we're legislating on, and some have no real experience in the real world. And that's that's part of the frustration sometimes. I want to hit on some topics. Uh, you're, you're a medical doctor. We brought this up before. Last week, the president um, comes out with his vac- vaccination mandate. Uh, for companies with 100 or more employees, of course, there are exceptions to that. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to figure out that some of those exceptions are ones that support him uh, and his party. Um, what are your thoughts on, on what he had to say last week? Well, I think from uh, the get-go, unfortunately, um, this COVID unleashed during a presidential year. Uh, which made medical science very politicized, which I think is a shame. And to, the, and to this day, I think we should be hearing from those that are taking care of patients. And we have people all across this country that, for example, with the vaccine, that were involved with the research of the vaccine as well as treating patients. Those are, the, those are who you should hear from, not Facebook, not the President of the United States, but maybe your local health director should be making some, some decisions. When it comes to, to freedom, I'm, I'm just not for these mandates. I think it's a very slippery slope when one person, you know, can start to decide these things. And I think businesses has, have every right to decide what their protocols are for their business. And if you don't like them, you, you don't necessarily have to work there. So um, I think that we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of politics still being involved with this. And, you know, our doctors caucus came out with a, with a statement that, you know, we're really better if people are educated uh, rather than indoctrinated. And, uh, and that's what I think. It's, this is another thing that's just going to divide us e- even further when it's put out. And many people perceive it as tyrannical. And, and it comes across that way. I served on the Cincinnati Board of Health. And, you know, we have things, uh, outbreaks of things and nothing to the magnitude of, of COVID. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, we have to have accurate data and we have to be out educating people of what is going on so that we can make the proper adjustments in, in people's health. Uh, I'm pro-vaccine. I took the vaccine. I think people should get the vaccine unless there's some medical contraindication. Um, but I understand where people have lost trust. In the African-American community, they're, they're curious if mm-hmm. there's some other experiment like what was done to Tuskegee Airmen. I don't blame people for having that, that those doubts. And so uh, I engage with people of doctors of color to who understand what this is about and why it's important and engage in public health to try and communicate, at least in my community. Uh, I've been out vaccinating, uh, both in uniform and just as a civilian uh, doing it in, throughout my district. Uh, I think the mandate is, is, is tough for a lot of people to accept. They want to understand uh, from someone that they trust. And mm-hmm. so I always encourage people, go talk to your doctor. The one the one who has, has studied this vaccine knows what's about, sees what the trends are. And, you know, we, we're kidding ourselves if we think uh, even 100% vaccinated is going to get rid of this. We, we knew from the trials that if there were, it, that there were people that got vaccinated that still got COVID. Now, the numbers were extremely small of those that got COVID that were vaccinated in the trials. But we also found out they didn't get very sick. And they didn't need to be hospitalized. The people that were getting hospitalized, people who were dying, uh, they uh, were not vaccinated. And the other thing that we have found, too, is even those in uh, a rare instance where someone vaccinated may die, they died with many, many comorbidities. And I'm, and I'm checking this out, especially, you know, within my district, is what are the real circumstances? People need to understand what is actually going on and how they're protected. I think, you know, you're 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 much safer from any type of a bad event if you're if you've been vaccinated than if you're unvaccinated and get COVID. Shifting gears, Secretary of State Blinken uh, met actually didn't meet. He was on a Zoom call with members of Congress yesterday to discuss the the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, I I can't believe. Brad Winstrup, that first of all, he was not there in person. And that was pointed out from the very beginning. I, I think a lot of just regular Americans, guys like me, guys like Dave Armbruster, our engineer, guys like, I mean, you're sitting there saying to yourself, this guy's a secretary of state. This is, this is what has just gone on in our country. And this guy can't find his way to make it three miles to sit face-to-face with human beings. What, what were your thoughts on, on his testimony? And I know there's more of it coming today. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, um, let, let me go back to the previous topic just for a second, if I can, Tom. One thing is, uh, as well, uh, health care decisions are usually made by the state, not by the White House. And they're usually made by the state with, with health director. Blinken also told us at one point, going now to Afghanistan and also relating it to COVID, he said at one point, one of the problems that they had in getting people out was because of COVID restrictions. And I found that extremely hypocritical when you look at what's going on at the southern border where people are coming across untested, unvaccinated. There's no there don't seem to be any COVID restrictions there. And it's really amazing and hypocritical when I hear something like that, when we're talking about American lives left in Afghanistan. Uh, it, it, it does 
seem incredible that he couldn't find his way to safely make his way over, you know, just uh, a few blocks away, basically. Um, but this is what's been going on, you know, since since COVID started. And even after people had the opportunity to be vaccinated in the House of Representatives before everybody else, uh, Nancy Pelosi still has proxy voting and people sit in their homes and vote. One Democrat told me that they've had people that haven't been there in over a year and they haven't missed a vote. It's not how it's supposed to work. It doesn't work well. You know, that way. You know, but he should have been there. Yeah, well, there's no question he should have been there. And I'll be interested to see if he's going to be there today. My guess is no. Um, you know, you're a doctor. I've asked you about COVID. You were also in the military. Now, most of us, I think in America, not everybody, but I think most of us, we've always looked at our military leaders as being these guys that stand for a number of things. Uh, and, and politics would not be one of them. But but I got to tell you, Brad, I, and, and I know you know these guys and you've met these guys, but for a lot of us, when we watch some of the things that have gone on before this Afghanistan thing and talking about you know, all kinds of different topics, uh, you know, General Milley and General Lloyd Austin. Um, don't you think that some of this stuff has a lot of people wondering if they can even trust the guys in the military anymore? And I don't mean uh, the guys who are on the ground. I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about the guys that are at the highest levels, like these two. Yeah, it seems to me, you know, we... Uh, we've said this about Vietnam. People are saying this about Afghanistan. Yep. The, the problem isn't from the boots. It's from the suits, right? It's from Pennsylvania Avenue. That's where the, that's where the problem is. And uh, that's, that's what a lot of people feel, and I think they have good reason to feel that way. Were we, were we acting politically, or were we really acting in the best interest of counterterrorism on behalf of our troops, on behalf of our U.S. citizens? You know, we, the president set a, a, a deadline of August 31st. That became our enemy's red line. I mean, you, you can't make this up. And I just find it hard to believe, Tom, uh, that our military leadership uh, thought it first and foremost thought it was a good idea to leave Bagram and to reduce the number of troops to 600. I'd like to believe that uh, rather than resigning, which I think I would have done, um, rather than resigning, they saluted and accepted the mission and said, you can't, you can't defend Bagram with 600 people. And if that was the order coming from the top, they decided to make another plan, which I know General Milley said this is extremely risky, extremely dangerous. He was very bothered by what was about to happen and did happen. And over the weekend, you know, part of the tribute on 9-11 that I gave as I gave tribute to the 13 that were killed mm-hmm. on August 26th of this year. And, I, you know, I want to remind people, as I talked about all those attacks before 9-11, uh, we, <clears throat> we had 9-11. Everybody knows about that. But we had all those attacks before. We had all those people serving for the last 20 years, keeping us safe and secure. And, and then we have this attack uh, on August 26th. And our enemy is still at war. So this is 9/11. Uh, this year was not a celebration; it was a memorial. It was a commemoration. It was a tribute. So at the end of the day, Tom, going to your to your question, I really do want to find out what was said where, and, and I hope that someday we do find out, because I'm extremely disappointed if our 
if our military leadership decided to get into a political stroke rather than a truly military stroke. You don't evacuate this way. It makes absolutely no sense. No Americans were killed since February of last year. So that's like 18 months. Mm-hmm. And, and no Americans were killed in Afghanistan. We had our people relatively safe. We were able to strike the Taliban if they weren't playing right and if we were at risk, and we did. And so rather than getting our people out first, and you, you heard the president say, well, I told him to get out a few weeks ago. That doesn't cut it. you got to tell them how, and you got to tell them why, and you got to do it. And then you, and you get our SIVs. We started in April of this year, bipartisan, mostly people that served in the Middle East. And we started with letters to the White House and phone calls to the White House, and we talked about getting our interpreters out, those that were promised that if push came to shove, they could come to America. We have a program for them. I supported two of mine from, uh, from Iraq. One of them is a cardiologist, and the other is doing family practice. They're both U.S. citizens, as are their family, and they raise the American flag. So we had the interest there. Never did we think, Tom, that we would be worried about our U.S. citizens and our assets. We were worried about the Afghanis that we promised they could, they could come with us if, when we leave. And instead, it, it ended up being our own U.S. citizens. You do all those things first, and then you pull out safely. When, when, when I hear uh, three days ago and read about anybody in our government talking about the Afghan government moving forward, and they're talking about inclusion, I mean... I mean, I'm saying to myself, am I living in a dream world here? Inclusion? You want more women in the Taliban and all that they've done to women and children and the way they look at women and the way they treat women and all these things that go on seemingly since the beginning of time. And our government is asking them about their government being more inclusive is that, I mean, am, am I wrong, or is this just like insane stuff? This is unbelievable. I saw that coming from the State Department. Like, did you just wake up this week, and you don't know anything about the Taliban? I mean, how, how, can, you, how can you even begin to think this? this is an ideology that they are bent on, and as long as they're procreating, it's going to continue. They're not going to change. Now, they might try to show a few things here and there, but what's going on is is not what they're trying to show. The reality is this is a group of people that now have control of a government, and they have no respect for human rights and no respect for women whatsoever. And so you do have people in Afghanistan, women that have – you know, have grown up 20 years with the idea that they're allowed to do things. They can be in government. And, uh, you know, I saw one report where one held a political position, a woman. Of course, they, they arrested her. I mean, it's, it's – who are we kidding here? It, you know, I, I know that a lot of America, unfortunately, has been living – I like to call the Truman Show, if you ever saw that movie, where everything around them is fake and they don't know it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and also, you know, what we have seen, unfortunately, is, you know, during the last campaign on mainstream media, 
President Biden could say whatever he wanted, and no one challenged him. Yep, yep, yep. And so they're just used to this. And so you paint the picture the way you want, and everyone's supposed to accept it. But, you know, those of us that deal in reality know this is nowhere near the truth, and it's not going to happen. And are you telling me, you know, you're going to uh, now try to recognize this group of people? What has America become? And, and you know, I think of after 9-11, George W. Bush, he, he stood up and said to America, basically, if you are a terrorist, we're coming after you. And if you house a terrorist, we're coming after you, too. And the rest of the world has to decide either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. Well, it looks like this group seems to be with, with the terrorists. And, it, and you're seeing it from educated people, former CIA directors, even Obama's former CIA directors come out and said, yep. this, this will now be the haven for some of the worst people in the world. And, it, and even stronger than it was before 9-11, 2001. That's a scary thought, but that's where we're, it seems like we're being led. I want to hit a couple of other topics very quickly because I've kept you longer than I told you I would, and I appreciate your time. I, I want to ask you very quickly, uh, Brad, about the southern border. Um, and, and this is just a question from you know the regular Joe who sits at home uh, goes to work every day, tries to provide for their family, do all the right things and live their lives and pray for peace and hope and a better life for their children and all those things. I think a lot of us wonder, and I, and I know this is 101 stuff here, but where did all of a sudden illegal immigration become okay? Right. Um, well, it, uh, I think it was okay under the Obama administration as well. Uh, it wasn't under the Trump administration, and he made several changes that were very humane. Uh, we had the stay in Mexico policy, and when that happened, the cartels, basically, their business was curtailed. This president comes along through executive order, says, hey, anybody under seven can come on in. I don't know how this... Government has been so turned on its head that laws that are passed don't don't matter anymore. Right, right. That's what I mean. And, yeah, and and a president can just o- override the law. He's not a legislator. He can sign legislation, but he's not a legislator. And you know, this is this is a this is a concern on both sides of the aisle when someone becomes president. But down at the border is ridiculous, especially with the pandemic going on. You would, and that was part of what was Title 42 under the Trump administration using that is because of COVID, you know, we're returning you to this other country, okay? Uh, gosh, one time I went to Australia, and I got quarantined because I had been in the lake in the last six weeks, and they were worried about bringing something in that might affect their environment or their health. Uh, and we're just letting people come right across. I've been down there. I've seen it. I will tell you, Border Patrol those poor people, they are doing everything they can. And by the way, they're not racist. They're predominantly Hispanic. Yeah, they speak yeah. the language, That's right. right? That's right. And a lot of people coming across are not just from um, south of our border, but from all around the world. We have people coming in on the terrorist watch list. It's, it's really un- unbelievable. And in places like Texas, the state is doing everything they can, but they don't have federal authorities at the border. Our border patrol—they're being—they're being healthcare providers, they're being social workers, taking care of kids, and then it leaves the border more wide open for drugs to come across and anything else illegal. And and it's a game, and it's a game that the cartels are winning. When we do this, it is a win-win for them because when he said seven-year-olds could come in, 
and anybody with them, then they started recruiting seven-year-olds. Sometimes they buy them. Uh, sometimes it is parents saying, please take, take my child, give them a better chance, because they're, they're misled. They think, well, Joe Biden said it's okay, so it <clears> must <throat> be okay. I'm not doing anything wrong. And I believe that's the attitude of so many coming across, and others certainly know uh, the controversy associated with it. Cartel certainly does, <clears throat> and, and they're the ones that are coming way ahead as we are putting our nation at risk. And, it's, and I am not against immigration. I talked to you about, you know, my two interpreters, you know, that I supported. Look, we all came from somewhere else. That's right. right? That's right. But we, but we came here legally. I got the paperwork of my grandfather coming through Ellis Island. It's a beautiful thing. Um, last question. Trump, um, a lot of people feel like he, he's leading, uh, hints are dropping, uh, everywhere that he's going to run again in 2024. Um, at the end of the day, is that good for the Republican party? Yeah. You know, I, I, I get, I get, uh, a lot of conversation directed my way, you know, and I've got people say Trump's got to run again. And other Republicans saying, oh, he can't. We can't go through all that um, again. Um, you know, so reigns to be seen. I think that he is uh, certainly trying to stay relevant in making, you know, he learned a lot as president of the United States. And so I think what he's doing now is, you know, trying to get out and tell people what works. And I don't think he's ruling anything out. Uh, at the end of the day, I want to do everything I can right now to take back the House of Representatives. And if that includes uh, the president's help in certain parts of the country, then I certainly want that. And I know Kevin McCarthy is, is working towards that. Uh, we need to take back the House. That's the most imminent thing. We'll see what happens in, in 24. Last thing I wanted to ask you about is on a personal note. I mentioned that uh, you and your wife, Monica, uh, have two children um, one of those children you adopted, uh, and, I, and I know we're really shifting gears here, but 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 I know a lot of people. Uh, my uncle uh, Tom Brenneman, him and his wife could not have children. Uh, they adopted a, a beautiful daughter, you know, thirty years ago. Uh, yours was just, I think, if I'm not mistaken, like two years ago, right? Uh, going on four. Oh, four. Okay, all right. My, my I'm sorry. Okay, so four years okay. ago, what would you say to parents that are thinking about adopting a child? I'll tell you. It's been the most wonderful thing. I mean, my wife and I, it's no secret, you know, we were older, got married late. And by the grace of God, we, we had our son, no problems with the delivery or anything else. Uh, but we both come from large families. I'm one of five. She's one of six. And uh, like, you know, we, we thought about adopting before we got married if we never could have children. So why not just go for adoption right now? And, um, you know, then my son will, will have a sibling. And, uh, so it took us, it took us a while, but we were very blessed. And Sophia is just an amazing little girl. <laughs> she, she keeps us, she works us out, but she keeps us laughing. And, and my son is just, you know, thrilled to have a sister. I mean, they're like any other kids. Mm-hmm. They have their battles. Sure. Know, sure. We did in our family. Yeah, that's right. Um, but boy, do they love each other, and it, and it's a wonderful thing. It really is uh, to have you. You only have one life, and you get a chance to uh, improve another life, uh, and by your own by your own personal doing too. And that's what's most rewarding. You know, I I I talk about actually, you know, being compassionate for, in, in Congress, and I and I said this the other day on, in, in our committee. 
I said, you're not compassionate because you put a card in a box and you push a button to tell someone else what they have to do and someone else has to pay for it. Compassion is when you do things yourself, when you are the one that is out making a difference personally, when you are the one in some way sacrificing. And, um, you know, I look at I look at us as America today and the debt that we have. And, you know, I, I have to say, I think this is the most selfish generation America has ever had. So as a generation, what are we doing for the next generation to say thank you? And, uh, you know, I, I hope in the case of our daughter uh, that uh, she'll say thank you one day. Well, Brad, I'd like to say thank you for your time. I can't thank you enough. I uh, kept you longer, as I mentioned, that I told you I would. I know you're busy. you got meetings to get to and all that kind of thing. So all the best, my friend. God bless you and your family, and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Brad Wenstrup, kind enough to join us, and um, good man, really good man. I've known him a long time. Um, and we're stepping out of the box on this deal, right? I mean, it's politics. Uh, maybe some of you come to this show and other shows because you want to stay away from politics. You're tired of hearing about it. I just thought that, that, that you know, you've got a guy who's a medical doctor and you've got a guy who served in the military. Uh, and, you know, some of these topics, as he even mentioned himself, some of these topics and some of these things are being decided by people who maybe have never served in the military, who have never seen a patient, who have never been to the southern border. Uh, who don't understand what the cartels are doing. So I hope you didn't mind that this week we stopped out of the box, stepped out of the box a little bit, and we'll get back to sports, I'm sure, again next week. As always, we thank Dave Arbrewster, our engineer. We thank our friends from the Believe Network for believing in this show and this program, and yours truly, Tom Brenneman. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll look forward to catching up with you again next week on Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.